0: John Bunyan said, Sin is the living worm, the lasting fire. Hell seen or soon would lose its heat could sin expire. Better sinless in hell than to be where heaven is and be found a sinner there. One sinless, With infernals might do well, but sin would make of heaven a very hell. Look to thyself then, keep it out of door, lest it get in and never leave thee more. Fools make a mock at sin, will not believe it carries such a dagger in its sleeve. How can it be, say they, that such a thing, so full of sweetness, Air should wear a sting. They know not that it is the very spell of sin to make them laugh themselves to hell. Look to thyself then. Deal with sin no more. Lest he who saves against thee shut the door. Friends, we all struggle with the tendency to lessen Sin's sting. We like to pad our lives with the pillows of comfort, hoping that we can keep sin's sting away. We think sin isn't that bad, especially those sins that either nobody knows about or we wouldn't consider a bad sin. And friends, if we're honest, We all need a sober look at what sin really is. It is, in fact, what R.C. Sproul called it all the time, cosmic treason. When you sin, you sin against a holy God. But what about those sins that people don't really think about? Sins that fly under the radar a lot of times. People don't really see it very often. It doesn't come to the surface very much. Sins that we don't really call attention to. Well, friends, in this passage, if you remember from last week, we went through the section that is, of course, previous to this one in chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. And we need to recall what we looked at last week because James often reuses themes introduced in the early parts of the letter. And he brings those up at later times. So in the previous section, he talked about, and you can go back and listen to my sermon. He talked about how we need to be people who produce the righteousness of God in our lives. We need to be people who behave in a way that is both pleasing to God and receives the word of God with the correct posture of heart. He emphasizes that we need to be a people who put away sin and listen to those who give us God's word because, as James says, the implanted word is able to save your soul. But friends, with that, he comes, it comes with a warning. He warns us along with the original audience that we need to receive the word, but we don't need to do it with passivity or a laziness. We need to listen with the intent to do what we hear. We see this because, friends, you know how easy it is to simply hear the word, act as if we have pleased God by simply hearing, and then simply move on. So, the emphasis of this passage is on what pure and undefiled religion is, and how this religion must be one of actions and not simple words, or that religion is worthless. But he talks about it like this, that those who do practice religion must do it in a way that, that God does it. Not in their own strength, not by their own wit, but by the power of God within them. And if it truly is the power of God working within them, then it will manifest itself in ways that God himself delights in. And we know from the, from the rest of Scripture that God loves to lift up the downcast and heal the brokenhearted. And friends, this speaks to the gracious nature of our Lord and how he truly is the father of the orphan and the husband of the widow. That God, through Christ, can bring sweetness out of bitterness and can paint beauty with a brush that is pulled from the ashes of our lives. See, we serve a God of grace. And He truly does desire to give grace to those who humble themselves and call upon Him. Friend, we will not turn. He will not turn you away. Are you sitting in the ashes of discontentment? Maybe today. Maybe you're suffering and you feel like God may have turned His eye from looking at you and you sense a loneliness. Your prayers feel like they're not going through the ceiling. I'd like to urge you, brother or sister, that if you are struggling today, continue to call upon Christ and don't give up. God is not a God of chaos, but of order. And this means that there is nothing happening in your life that is purposeless. That it all has a trajectory to it. And though you might feel like your life is a twig, And at any moment it could snap, God might be taking that twig and planting it to be an oak. So dear Christian, persevere and press on, understanding that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The one who started the work will continue it and will complete it in the end believe what the Puritan Richard Sibs says of our Lord. He says, He, being Christ, is a meek king. He will admit mourners into his presence, a king of poor and afflicted persons. As he hath beams of majesty, so he hath bowels of mercy and compassion, a prince of peace. Why was he tempted? But that he might help those that are tempted. What mercy may we not expect from so gracious a mediator that took our nature upon him that he might be gracious to us. He is a good physician at all diseases, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. He died that he might heal our souls with a plaster of his blood. And by that death, save us. To those who call upon Him, God is not a merciless judge. He is a merciful Savior. But friend, if this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this, maybe you're here and you have never heard this. Never heard anything like what I'm saying now. Or maybe you have. Maybe you thought you were a Christian before, but now you're having second thoughts. Or maybe you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian you may understand that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God's judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. So I would say to, to you, a person who may not know Christ, repent of your sins and call upon him. He cares for those who are poor in spirit. He will save you if you call upon him. See, friends, this is the kind of taste that James wants us to have because that's that's where he left off. That's where he left off in the previous section, and now he's going to deal with a specific branch of hearing and doing the word. But how that might look when we show favoritism based on external appearance and not based on what God values so let's read the passage, chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, if you would read along with me. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing, also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, as we begin this passage, I want to make some clarifications with regard to the rich and the poor. I want to give a few thoughts at this time and in this context, there was a, a little more separation between what we would consider the rich and the poor today, unlike what, we have, unlike what you have today in, in our current context. But more specifically, the rich were oppressing the poor and were exploiting the poor to get possessions or even labor from them. And it might also refer to rich who were not caring for those that they paid, It might also be, and probably was, in line with what we see tax collectors doing. Oppressing people because they would say that the taxes were more than they actually cost. And when the person would pay the taxes, they would pocket the overflow amount. And either way, the text is not very clear on the kind of oppression that this was. And obviously, it wasn't a concern of James. He didn't make it clear. They knew what he was talking about. But whatever this cruelty was, there were people in the church who were favoring the rich because of their exterior, because of the way they looked, because of what they had. Another thing worth mentioning is that this, when this text speaks of the rich, it doesn't simply mean people who have a lot of money. Although it it does include that. But because of that money, those who had power or prestige those who were considered successful in the world's eyes and whose social status was enviable they may have had a network of people they could they could connect with and they could connect others with another thing is that this passage is not suggesting that there is any connection between poverty and being righteous or being rich and being wicked. Friends, there are people who have interpreted passages like this, and then they'll sell all they have and say that they're righteous, more righteous as a result. That is not the case. That's not what this scripture is teaching. So there's no parallel. There's no parallel between them. So First Timothy 5a, I mean, the scripture proves this. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So God is not against making money. He's not against providing for your family. But it's a specific type of richness and power that these people were showing favoritism towards. Now this passage is split into two sections. The first section is verse 1 through 7. And verse 1 through 7 is answering this question. What does sinful partiality look like? In verses 8 through 13 is pointing out that there is no small sin. Every sin will convict. Every sin will bring guilt. So what does the sin of partiality actually look like? So verses 1 through 7. What we see first is that James just basically tells them in verse 1, show no partiality. I mean he says show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. He gives a quick principle that will guide I mean it literally guides the rest of the entire section. So how does it look when someone does show partiality as they hold the faith in Jesus Christ. Notice too how the word how the verse ends. James refers to Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. And it's interesting that he uses this, this title for Jesus because after this, he talks about people who have been giving glory to people and not God. Almost as if he is saying, you've been giving a lot of glory to a lot of people. But are you giving it to the only one to whom it's due? James shares this because he knows, friends, we struggle with this. The church then struggled with it. We do struggle with giving glory to those who do not deserve it, and it is often not because we delight in giving glory, but because we want glory in return, quid pro quo. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. Friends, this is an easy trap to fall into. So easy that we need to be on constant guard. And friends, the goal, the goal of the Christian is to become, or is to come to the point where we must give glory. But we are not glory hoarders. We're even willing to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ without seeking building up in return. Hoping, prayerfully, that they desire to build up as well. But we don't seek glory. We only seek to give glory. And this falls right in line with what he talks about in the following verses. He's trying to point out that we do desire glory. And we are often not seeking for the eternal glory, but for temporary glory. And it will fade away. It will fade away. So then he gives us this amazing James-like hypothetical illustration. And James is really good at this. So he gives us this illustration, verse 2 through 3. For if a man, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. He is, friends, he is speaking hypothetically. Is, this is not a real example. Now, this is an example that he uses because he knows that it applies to them. That's why he's using it. I mean, literally, he says, suppose. Suppose a man comes in, and he does this. But notice that he points out that a rich man comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and the poor man comes in wearing shabby clothing. So from the very beginning, we see that this judgment made made by these people is from the outside only. They see the man, they see them come in, and they make judgment based upon the look. Based upon what they appear to be. And the scripture says, you pay attention to the one who fi- wears the fine clothing. That same, section, that same wording is not used for the poor man. They do not pay attention to the poor man. So that statement, a statement is not there when talking about the poor man. Attention is given to the rich man because he is dressed well. Friends, so I have to ask this question. Do you struggle with this? Do you find it a hard time giving attention to those who look the part but may not actually be what they appear to be? Do you struggle giving attention to some based on exterior excellency rather than an interior one? Friends, how easy it is to give attention based on the first appearance of a person. We might want the kind of lifestyle that they represent. We might even desire the connections that they could offer. Do you struggle so much with people pleasing that you would do anything to get ahead in the world's eyes? They desire the approval that comes from man more than the approval that comes from God. We all struggle, friends, with with this in some degree, of showing favoritism to some and not others. Think, too, about valuing Christians, based on something other than who they are in Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with the fact that someone may be a doctor or someone may be a lawyer. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's valuing valuing them primarily on that basis and not on who they are in Christ, their true identity. Being drawn to a person because they might have something to offer you. Friends, this can manifest itself in in many different ways. It could be the way that someone dresses, their general physical appearance, their color of skin, their background, their seeming economic status. Friends, this could be because of age. We could show favoritism to some and not others because their age matches ours better. Remember, this, is the kind of favorite, this, this kind of favoritism is when we cast a first quick judgment based on the outside. Think about walking into a lunchroom and there are two tables, one group at one table and the other group at another, and one group is like you. Whether it's ethnically, their age, someone who has similar things in common to you. So we end up going to that table where we're comfortable with and not the other table. And why is that? What is the the mental impulse that causes us to make decisions that we may not think we have thought through that well? We just just do it. If someone asks us why I went to that table, we might just say, well, I just went to the table. I just went to that one instead of the other one. Well, friends, I want to offer the idea that we don't ever do anything that is without any thought at all. We don't ever do anything thoughtlessly. There is always forethought. You know, I might walk into a movie theater and because I don't want to climb the stairs, I sit in the first row. (laughs) Or because I don't want to walk, From the back of the parking lot at Walmart, I'll park at the front. Friends, there's there's reasons for what we do. Even if we make a snap decision, there's reasons. We do give thought when it comes to choosing to talk to or hang out with a certain group of people. Friends, I struggle with this too. We all struggle with this to some extent. So the, the thing that we need to do is ask ourselves, ask yourself critically... Why did I make that decision? Was it because I'm favoring my comfort above their well-being? Is it that I'm searching for my spiritual good rather than theirs? See, brothers and sisters, I believe we often default to to a certain person and not others. Because we actually do think we can gain more from that person than from the other person. Well, that person's boring. I don't want to hang out with them. I'll go to that person because I have a lot in common with them. Beloved, I think if we do think about it, do you value financial security more than you value eternal security? Do you choose your friends in a way that would reflect that? Remember, be critical of your choices. And do and and do these default choices based on the we do this, we, we do it based on the outside and not the inside. Friends, that is literally what the Greek word means. The word partiality means to judge based on the face of a person. God judges by the heart. Friends, I'd like to encourage you. Don't allow yourself to coast. To coast along and simply make gut decisions, not realizing where those decisions came from. They came from somewhere. Ask the Lord to make it clear to you what those thoughts are and how those thoughts might be affecting your decision making. And how, if you think critically about those thoughts and those decisions that you make, you might be showing more partiality than you realize. It's thinking critically about the way we think, about what we do, about how we behave. I mean, Scripture tells us to examine, examine yourself. So after this, James starts moving toward four rhetorical questions. And remember, he's answering the question, what does it look like to show partiality? So these four rhetorical questions... He barrages these questions on the reader. I mean, he just there's a, four of them, and they're, they're all rhetorical. They're, and the answer to every one of them is yes. So let's read these questions. Verse 4 says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man, and not the rich ones. Are not the rich ones the the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So, friends, I want to draw out six things that we can learn from these questions. When we show sinful favoritism to some and not others. The first is this. When we show sinful favoritism to some and not others, we bring division where God brings unity. And that's in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 22 says, But now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Friends, we bring division where God makes one new man. When we show sinful partiality to one another. When we act in sinful favoritism towards other Christians, we're actually dismantling what God has brought together through Christ. It pleases Him when His people can act in unity in accordance with the unity that the Spirit of God brings into our lives and into the church. But when we behave with favoritism, we are acting in opposition to the Spirit of God. James calls it, Distinction. And I'm reading in the ESV, but in other translations and in the original language, the, the word literally means to just separate. Are we not showing distinctions? Yeah, it's separating. Are you not separating? This is why the Christian life, friends, is not one of coasting. It's, of one, it's one of constant examination. Because when we are coasting, we might be in sin and we may not realize it. Have some some healthy introspection and examine yourself. The reality is this, the enemy wants you to coast. He wants you to be okay with coasting. Satan doesn't care about you as long as you're not helping God's cause. which is why this is such a big deal to James. He's trying to get, to the, he's trying to get the, ori- the original audience and ours to remember that if we simply coast through this life without any introspection, we will end up being double-minded. Remember, that's the topic he's already covered. Tossed by every wind of doctrine, doubting that God can give the wisdom he promises to give. Friends, don't coast. Don't just put it in neutral and roll down the hill. Be critical of your actions. Think through them. Be critical of your motives. James 1:7 says, "For that person must not suppose the double-minded man must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord." Friends, this neutral kind of Christianity is dangerous. It's dangerous, and we may not even know it. Satan wants us there. He wants us coasting. He wants us in neutral. The second thing this passage teaches us is that when we show sinful favoritism, we judge when God is the only judge. Verse 4, it says, Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Notice what it says in 2 Chronicles 9, 6-7. He says, Consider what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgments. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God. No partiality or taking of bribes. Friends, it becomes so easy to cast easy and simple judgments based on some outside behavior rather than the, than the internal reality of that person's soul. Friends, this too, casting that judgment is dangerous for a Christian. It's dangerous to do. See, the problem is that our hearts are evil. <laughs> our hearts are evil. If you don't believe that, go back and listen to my sermon on James chapter one, verse 12 through 18. It is abundantly clear that evil, evil thoughts, and desire come from within our hearts. We are not the product of our upbringing. We are not the product of our context. The upbringing or context we grew up in simply reveals what's already in our hearts. Evil. So, James. Keys in on this. He grabs it, grabs the bull by the horn, and shows us that if we judge, if we decide to make ourselves judges, we have evil in our hearts and thus our judgments are evil. Haven't you become judges with evil thoughts? Friends, we have judgments that are tainted by sin. But think of that in contrast to God that God is perfect. And because of that, he has perfect judgment. See, beloved, by nature, we honor that which is dishonorable. We value that which is valueless. We prize what is dung in God's sight. But all of God's judgments are pure. So what he values will always be perfect value. Now, friends, I want to point out as well, there is a judging that the church does or a sentencing. It's not a final judgment, but it's a sentencing on God's behalf. It's what the church does in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. I'm not going to talk about that now, but I wanted to put that out there. You can study that on your own time, but that is a kind of judgment that the church carries on God's behalf. The third thing that this passage teaches is this. When we show sinful favoritism, we choose those who are rich in the world while they are poor in faith. The verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? We choose the opposite. See, this is reflected in the illustration James gave earlier. When he says that, We say to those who show favoritism, sit here in a good place. I mean, think about the words he's using. Sit here in a good place. We see the approach that James is using when he's talking about judgment. He's talking about placement. When a person comes in and you say, you sit over here, I'm going to place you right here. See, we love to place what we desire in this life as valuable instead of what God says is valuable. It becomes so easy to place value on something that has nothing of innate value. But this falls in line with the way that God judges. Has not God chosen placement? Has not God chosen the the honorable name by which you were called? Two words in this passage. That God judges. God places. We do not. And those who think like the world seek to place the successful in the good place. They also seek to place the unsuccessful in the place of disrepute. But how does God view those of of low estate? We already mentioned a little bit of this earlier. Friends, He lifts the downtrodden. God takes those who are dead in their trespasses and seats them with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Later in James chapter 4, he says, "God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble." He says, "Then submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter Be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now this doesn't mean that we need to be sad to be righteous. But it does mean that we must understand we have nothing to contribute to God. We bring nothing to him. And our placement means nothing compared to what God places and when he places where he wishes. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Friends, we're dealing with all of that in this passage. Those who are poor in spirit are the ones who have chosen to elevate whom God has chosen to elevate rather than the rich in this world. See, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See, friends, here we're seeing that James isn't simply talking about those who are poor or those who are rich, but those who are poor in spirit. Those who have heavenly riches and earthly poverty. Those who might have earthly riches, but heavenly poverty. And by this, James is referencing what he talked about earlier in chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. When he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Friends, in these verses we see that those who are in this world might not have much according to worldly standards. We need to remember, though, that those who are poor in this world, those who actually are poor in spirit towards God... They need to remember their heavenly status. That's what this scripture means. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He's saying, remember who you are in Christ. But then he reminds the rich and the powerful in this world to remember that, that in Christ they are servants. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. The fourth thing this passage teaches us is this. That when we show sinful favoritism, Toward one another, we dishonor those that God has chosen. Verse 6, verse 6 says this, but you have dishonored the poor man. He's not asking another question. He is simply stating a fact. You have dishonored the poor man. And friends, the interesting thing about this is that he's getting right into the grill of these people. Notice how James continues to screw it in a little tighter over and over and over again. That's that's the way this whole book goes. He just keeps tightening it and tightening it and showing Christians, showing believers, follow Christ. Don't be hearers, but doers of the word. But but then the fifth thing, the the, the fifth point that this this passage brings up is this that when we show sinful favoritism we approve of oppression when God approves of liberty think about what happened in Galatians when, when Paul confronted Peter the text in Galatians 2 11-14 says but when Cephas that is Peter he came to Antioch so Paul is in Antioch with a bunch of Gentiles and Paul comes or Peter comes And Paul says, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men, he's he's talking about Jews. Before certain men came from James, Jews came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated. Remember that word? Separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, who was Barnabas? He was, Paul's, he was Paul's partner. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying your conduct is not in line with the gospel. Friends, Paul Paul points out here in this one section the subtlety of favoritism. And how it is hypocrisy. And that it is not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, when we, need to be, we, when we need to be careful not to promote those who might add something to the gospel, we need to be careful because what we might be doing by adding something to the gospel, either unintentionally or intentionally, we're showing favoritism. We've had those thoughts. There is only a certain type of person that, that goes to that place, or that church. And they'll fit in there. It's like we add types to Christianity when there is no distinction for those who are in Christ. Neither Jew nor Gentiles, all are free in Christ. That means that people are free to be themselves while at the same time following Christ, even if they might look different, eat different, play different sports, talk differently, and have different interests. When we show sinful favoritism, we are attempting to bind what Christ has set free. This behavior will lead people astray, chasing after things that are not Christ. The gospel is not Jesus plus something. It's it's simply Jesus. And we get that from when verse 6 says, Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by by which you were called? Friends, we show favoritism by valuing things plus Jesus. And it leads people astray. And it binds them to the law rather than freedom. The sixth thing this passage shows us is that when we show sinful favoritism, we blaspheme God's name and we dishonor God's people. I'll reread verse 7. It says, Are they not the the rich, the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, James now says this time, or this name you were called out by. The people who you are showing favoritism towards, they blaspheme God's name. So again, the notch has been turned up. How do you speak about God's bride? How do you speak about Christ's bride? When you say something of his bride, you are saying something of his name. Remember that what I said earlier about God's judgment, that it's pure. It's pure. So what he values is actually valuable. So what, it, what is it saying when, of God's name when we dishonor what God has chosen or called out as his own? Friends, it blasphemes, it blasphemes God's name. Though it's, though it's an imperfect place, the church is still Christ's bride. Speak well of her. And don't drag her through the mud. See, men, think about, think about if, if someone was to dishonor your bride. If someone was to dishonor your wife. See, we speak ill of God's name when we dishonor God's church. Because that's his bride. And he takes an offense at that. Now the next half to this section is in verse 8 through 13. And what James is pointing out here is that there is no small sin. There are no such things as a small sin. He transitions to verses 8 through 13 and in this section is no longer trying to show them what they are doing, But instead, he's trying to help them see the magnitude of their decisions. To honor what God doesn't and to dishonor what God does honor. So verse 8 through 13 reads this way. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And convicted, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. The passage teaches us three things. And the first one is that we are to fulfill God's law, not our preferences. And that's in verse 8 through 9. James gives us two if-then statements. He says, if you fulfill the law great. But if you don't, if you show partiality, you're guilty. You're condemned. And Jesus Jesus quoted this same thing. Remember when he was in his earthly ministry? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. And by this, he's He's emphasizing, friends, he's bringing it back, he's reinforcing the importance of the Old Testament law, but also that we are not to live in light of the way we prefer of our preferences. What we see is that when we show sinful favoritism towards one another, we are going in direct contradiction to how God says we are supposed to live. So not only are we disobeying God by showing partiality, we are not even following the essence of the law, the original law that God wrote through the hand of Moses. But notice, too, what he says in the following verses, in 10 through 11. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is guilty of all. And then, he reads, and then we read in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Friends, James continues to tighten it up. And he says, if you keep the whole law, but fail at one thing, he says, you're guilty of all the law. Now, I believe James is, I believe James might be suspecting that those who are reading the letter are thinking to themselves. And you might be thinking yourself. What's the big deal, James? Showing favoritism towards some and not others is is not that big of a deal. It's really just not that big of a deal, right? I mean, we all do it. And it's really not that It's just not that important. I mean, we're not murdering. We're not committing adultery. So is it really that bad? Now think about, really quick, think through the implications of what's in verse 10 through 11. James is telling them that because they are guilty of the law when they fail at one point, When they commit what seems like a small sin, they are guilty of sins that they haven't even committed. Now think about the weight of that statement. In essence, James is saying this, friends. When you sin by showing partiality, you are guilty of adultery. When you sin by showing partiality, you are guilty of murder. See, in God's sight, small sins are big. And you cannot hold on to the world even if it's a little bit, and hold on to Christ at the same time. James is hes dismantling this idea by showing them that either they hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or they hold on to their sin. And that's why he Refers back, or that's why I would like to refer back to verse 1 when he says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Show no partiality as you hold the faith. See, beloved, some people think they can hold on to Christ with their one hand and hold on to the world with the other. And to make and to continue in that kind of state as a Christian will either make you miserable or you will repent of that sin, let it go and follow Christ, one or the other, or it might prove that you may not know him. See, friends, we cannot hold on to our sin and follow Christ at the same time. Romans 6, 1 through 4, we know this passage. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound. In other words, we can't continue sinning and just think that we're going to repent of those sins later. Or we can ask for forgiveness later. After all, he has more grace than we have sins, right? He goes on by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized, who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, stop. We need to stop thinking our sin is small. God hates sin, no matter how it comes. The small sins. That's why there's no such thing as a testimony that is, that is not good as another. It's because when God saves, it's always a miracle. Always. Because we are all terrible sinners. Even if it is considered a small sin, small sins reap big judgment. Which means that even for small sins, it takes riches of mercy to overcome that sin. The third thing this passage teaches us is that that we are to show mercy, not favoritism. That we are to show mercy, not favoritism. Verse 12 through 13 reads this way. So speak, And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We see repeated things that we saw in the last chapter. Our speech, our actions. We see that the idea here, but we were reminded that God will judge us according to our actions. Friends, now that doesn't change the fact that we are in Christ. We are secure in Christ. But we will be judged. And we were reminded that God will show mercy to those who are of humble estate. And we must understand that. Small sins make us the most wretched of sinners in God's sight. And because of that, we know we need mercy. We need mercy. We plead for mercy. We've been forgiven the greater debt than we could ever hold against a brother or a sister in Christ. And if you are struggling with sin, if you're struggling with forgiving if you're struggling with extending mercy when God has given you the riches of His mercy, remember that you are guilty and will be convicted if it were not for Christ. We are no different if Christ had not chosen us. We need to feel the weight of our sin. But also remember that God continues to delight in lifting the sinner from the ashes. So when we mourn, God lifts the sinner. When we are downcast, God lifts us to our knees, though we were on our face. Thomas Manton Says this. God exercises acts of mercy with delight. His mercy rejoices over judgment. And though the devil be the accuser of the brothers, of the brethren, yet because mercy has rejoiced over judgments, therefore we may rejoice over Satan and go to heaven singing. See, God is the just, is just, and He is the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And friend, if you're here and you're struggling, if you're struggling with an, a sin that is creeping in your heart, you're struggling to put it away. You're struggling to move on, or say you're struggling with a subtle sin that you just have noticed, maybe as I've been preaching this sermon. And it's something that's so small. Friends, pay attention to it. And thank the Lord that His Spirit pricks our consciences. Pray that He doesn't stop pricking. Because when He does, friends, it might be the end. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are eternally good to us. That you cause us to walk in righteousness though we could never do it ourselves. Lord, we thank you that we have books like James to study. We thank you that you have given us men and women of the faith who have gone before us, apostles and elders who have walked before us to give us books like this that cause us to think and cause us to ponder the way we live and cause us to think about what we might consider not sins that are a big deal. But Lord, thank you for your grace that you show us in Christ that by your Spirit you reveal to us that little sins still make us guilty. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would extend that to us without measure. We pray that we would not use it as those who are unthankful, but that we would be blessed because we understand that we are forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.